Yeah, it's a real exciting time of year. I love it. I love everything about it. I love everything about the week of Thanksgiving all the way up until Christmas. Every single little part, the sights, the smells, the bells, the whistles, the chaos. It's just, it's excellent. It's wonderful. I love church. When it gets decorated, had some wonderful people come up and, and decorate the church. I think they got tired of Brain and I trying to do it. Um, we don't do a lot well, and we for sure don't know how to fluff a tree. Like that is a, there's something about, it's like a, you need a degree to get in there and, uh, and do that. So we got over, overpowered this year, which is wonderful. Um, but I love it, and I love all parts of it, and we're really glad you're here. And it's really an exciting time. And it's, what's fun is, is that we get to do all this sort of lead up to what we already know to have happened. It's this incredible promise that is fulfilled and still is yet to come, and it's just, it's just fantastically great. But I ask myself every year, right, I have to remind myself every year, what is this all really about anyway? Like if we're really honest, right, like from a cultural standpoint, it's got a very different um, kind of understanding and ring to it than it does from a church standpoint. From a cultural standpoint, for example, this year we are slated as Americans to spend about $950 to $1.1 trillion on Christmas. That's up double from what was in 2013 when it was about $470 billion. So I need to say that number again. As Americans, we are going to spend a trillion dollars on Christmas this year. You know what that means? That means that all but 16 countries in the world, we will spend more on Christmas than their entire GDP. So 160 countries that we keep record of will have a lower GDP than Americans will spend on Christmas. $80 billion we spent on lawn decorations. Four out of five of dog owners will spend at least $50 on their dog, which means that we will spend $60 billion over the next four weeks on dog presents, right? 22% of us will go into full-blown debt to go buy these Christmas presents at an average of about 22.45% on the average American credit card, which the average American carries just under $10,000 of debt. So you start to ask yourself, what is all this really about? I mean, it's easy for us to sit here and say, surely that's not it, right? And those aren't all horrible things. Like, I'm not saying don't go buy Christmas presents or buy your dog a sweater or whatever. That's fine. But it's really easy to misplace what is happening for what is happening, right? And what's happening from a church standpoint is a couple of incredible things. This idea of Advent, which I kind of explain every year, is this really incredible season, but it wasn't always tied to Christmas Day like we've tied it to it now. For a long time, the season of Advent was actually tied to Epiphany, which is a celebration of the Incarnation that takes place 12 days after Christmas and leads us into Lent. And on Epiphany, the church historically would baptize all new believers from that year. And so Advent was the leading up of the baptism of new believers that would lead us into Lent. Had very little to actually do with Christmas Day itself, but it was a buildup to this incredible thing in which redemption was celebrated and all was headed towards the resurrection. But historically, the church kind of adopted Advent as part of the Christmas story because it comes from the Latin term Adventus, which means coming or arrival. And as I mentioned earlier in our announcements, from a standpoint of the church, there really are two Advents. There's not just one. The first Advent is the celebration of the inbreaking of Christ into the world, the coming of Jesus as an infant. It's what we celebrate when we sing songs about Jesus lying in the manger. The first advent is that God so loved the world that he sent his son Jesus. He broke into this world and he has come, period. The second advent is actually the promise that comes from the resurrection, which is Christ himself has said he will return. So there is a second advent that is coming in which Christ will return and he will make all things right and he will redeem 
creation to himself. Therefore, there is the first advent that we live in and the second advent in which we live in anticipation too. And so Christmas for the believer is both a is and a will be. It is a has come and a promise of what will come, all rolled into one. It's why when we come on Sunday morning, we don't just celebrate Jesus lying in a manger as an infant. Jesus grew up and had a real life, sacrificed that life, died on a cross, and was raised from the dead and told his followers that he will return. So we celebrate that God broke into our world, shattered all the things that we know, and promised to return again. And on that return, he will wipe away every tear from their eye. He will make everything new and right, and he will redeem creation. And so we celebrate that God loved us enough to come, conquer death through the resurrection of Jesus, and promised he would return again. And that, in a nutshell, is Advent, right? Can't really be mistaken for shopping malls and dog sweaters and credit card debt and those things. Although those are part of the season, they aren't the season. But at the core, the first advent is really about the incarnation, right? The incarnation is actually, by definition, the embodiment of God and the person of Jesus Christ. So what that means is that God became flesh. The incarnation is the idea that God so loved his creation that he stepped into creation as the person of Christ to redeem the creation that he himself breathed life into. And we like to think that the incarnation is this peaceful thing, right? We sing a lot about it at the holidays, that Jesus was just lying there as the perfect baby in a manger, and everybody stood around holding hands, singing great little sweet songs, and peace on earth, and hot chocolate, and all those things that we think about. But the incarnation was actually a radical collision. It was violent. The holiness of heaven crashing into the sinfulness of humanity. John calls it light piercing the darkness. All throughout Scripture, we don't see this easing in of holiness into sinfulness. We see this collision of worlds, even Christ on the cross, as earthquakes and darkness and curtains and veils being turned, torn in two in the temple. You see, the incarnation was a collision of what was holy into what was fully sinful because holiness would redeem. So when we think about this season, what we're reminding ourselves of is that holy God loved his creation so much that he had a violent collision with heaven on earth to uproot and put fully to death sin through the perfect life and death and resurrection of Jesus and then promised his people that he would return. Everything we do this season is centered around those truths. This is Advent, the coming and the will come. This is the incarnation that has come because he loved us. So everything else you do from this point on, whether it's shopping malls and gifts or online presents or whatever it is you do and putting lights on the house and stress and all those kind of things, keep it in its right place, right? This season, like all seasons, this week, like all weeks, this breath, like all breaths, is about Christ, So let's refocus our hearts as we think about this season. So for the next few weeks, we're going to be exploring this idea um, through the lens of a couple of different people. We're going to look at it through the lens of Mary when the angel Gabriel appears to her and says, Mary, your life's about to change. We're going to look at it through that lens. Next week, we're going to look at it through the lens of Joseph when an angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream and says, hey, Joseph, your life's about to change. And then we'll have our big Christmas service, which will be a journey of scripture and song. And then on Christmas Eve, we're going to explore the call of the church when the Holy Spirit basically says, Hey, church, your life's about to change. And in every one of those instances, from Mary to Joseph to the church, the response is remarkably the same. And it is this, come, Lord Jesus. 
which should be the cry of each one of us, not just in this season, but every breath we take as a follower of Christ, which is Jesus, come. Come again. Return. Make all things right. I believe you are who you say you are. Come, Lord Jesus. This morning we're going to turn our attention to a very young, betrothed girl named Mary. And we're going to look at this kind of a announcement through the lens of what she's feeling, what the Lord himself promises her, and how that should change how you and I approach all of these things. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to turn to a very, very familiar story in Luke chapter 1. Chapter 126, this is the moment when the angel of the Lord, right, angel Gabriel, sent by God, which is actually God's voice himself. God uses his angels as his voice, as his mouthpiece. So when the angel speaks to Mary, it's the Lord speaking to Mary. We're going to see what the Lord says to her and how that should turn our worlds upside down um, as it did her. So let's take a moment, let's pray together, and then we'll just dive into this really awesome and familiar text this morning as we reorient our hearts and whisper from our souls, come Lord Jesus. God, we thank you for Advent. We thank you that it is a season that reminds us and is a foreshadow of what's to come. Lord, these are not just things we should remember on four Sundays a year and the Sundays that lead up to Christmas. They're things that are true at every breath of every moment, on every Sunday of every day, and every hour of every week. These are the realities of who you are, that you loved humanity enough, that you loved your creation enough to come be the embodiment of perfection and holiness, die to conquer death, raised victorious to life so that we might know you, left us with the beautiful promised gift of the Holy Spirit, and then told us you would return to make all things right. That is the gospel rolled into a beautiful ball. And Advent is about every tiny corner of it. It is not just about Jesus coming in to the cry of shepherds in the middle of the night or magi that bring gifts or Mary in the manger. It is, that is the piece to a story that is so much bigger and so much more beautiful. And so over the next few weeks, Lord, I ask that you would just remind our hearts of your complete redemptive story that begins with the breath of creation and will end when you come and make all things right. Until then, Lord, we stand in both the was and will be, the what has come and what will come. Take a moment in your own heart this morning before we dive into this text and just ask the Lord to just whisper to your heart, to teach you. Maybe just remind you of something. These aren't complicated messages over the next few weeks. They're just reminders of simple truths to reorient our hearts. Ask the Lord just to teach your heart this morning. Just kind of whisper that in your soul. And as we do each week, take a moment and pray for someone beside you or around you, behind you, in front of you, just around you somewhere. Be in the habit of praying for other people. If you're here for the first time, we, we do this each week. We want to be in the habit of praying for other people. We want to care about their spiritual growth and development. So just pray. Say, God, teach this person. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's a, a friend. Or maybe you're just here on your own. Just pray for somebody. Maybe you don't even know their name. Just be in the habit of praying for, for other people. Lord, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. We ask you to teach our hearts this morning. In Jesus' perfect and holy and redemptive name.
Emmanuel. Amen. Luke chapter 1, 26 through 38. Let's look at it together. This is the moment in which the Holy Spirit shows up through the angel Gabriel and announces to Mary that life is about to change for her. And Mary, as you know, and probably are fully aware, is a quite the young lady. Um, she, and I say young by most literally young. She probably is 15-ish in that window. Uh, in that culture, it was very prominent at that age to be headed towards marriage and these arranged marriages. And she was betrothed or engaged to be married to this man named Joseph when the Lord shows up and basically speaks to her and says, things are going to change from here on out. Mary, you who are highly favored. And this is what he says to her. He says in verse 26, in the sixth month, God sent an angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at the words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid. Mary, you have found favor with God. You will be with child, and you will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am still a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to have been barren in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be as you have said. And then the angel left her. So this is the picture of the interaction we have, right? Mary going about her normal everyday kind of life with whatever that meant for her in those days. She was in an arranged marriage, <clears throat> betrothed, engaged, if you will, to be married to Joseph. By those arranged marriages, obviously they didn't have, and especially in the Middle Eastern culture, they didn't have any type of relationship together. They probably spent zero time together at all. Their families knew each other. The marriage was arranged Mary was prominently a virgin, which means that her and Joseph had not been together, obviously, and that was a whole part of this major story. But here an angel of the Lord is sent by God. The angel Gabriel, which is the angel that makes announcements for God, comes to Mary and says to her, you who are highly favored, right? Mary, you who are highly favored, God is with you. Mary's troubled. She doesn't know what to do with this greeting. He tells her not to be afraid, that she's been favored again. And he says, something incredible is about to happen. God has shown favor to you, and you are going to have a child. And that child, and he gives a few details about what's to come, but not how this is going to unfold. He says, that child is going to reign on the house as the house of David forever. That child will be called the Son of the Most High. That child will be called the Son of God. And Mary, of course, says, I got a whole lot of questions, but the first one is how. And he says, well, the Lord will overshadow you. The Holy Spirit will do this miraculous work. And everybody will point to the Son of God. She says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be as you said. And the angel leaves. And that's the whole interaction that we, we get. When I was looking at this over the past few weeks, kind of looking at each of these accounts, I, I, I kind of went with my mind in the place of what would I experience or feel or think if this is happening, at least to me, or I'm in a similar circumstance where the Lord just shows up and begins to make these announcements. And what did Mary think and feel? 
And we get a few glimpses in there. Like we can't really project too much because it doesn't give us too much details, but we can, we can get a glimpse of some of the things that she's experiencing, right? And the first thing that we see is that she's troubled in spirit. In fact, she's greatly troubled. And it's funny because when I first read that, I was like, well, yeah, I'd be greatly troubled too if the Lord just told me that I was going to give birth to the Son of God, but that's not why she's troubled. She gets troubled before the Holy Spirit through the angel Gabriel even tells her anything. So she's not troubled right away at the fact that this announcement is incredible and that she's going to give birth to the Son of God and that that Son is going to be the one that reigns over the house of David. That's much bigger than why she's troubled. She's actually troubled because she has no idea about this greeting. Because the angel of the Lord just shows up and says, Hey, Mary, you are highly favored and God is with you. And it says in that moment that she is troubled in spirit. or She is greatly troubled. Because here's the thing. When God shows up and says, Hey, listen, I really like you. I'm going to be with you. Something else is coming, right? Like, God didn't just show that up and be like, it's good, like, hey, lottery's coming. I want to help you spend the money, so I'm going to be with you. No, he's basically saying life's about to get real bumpy, and I don't want you to freak out. And so what I want to tell you is I am here. And that's what the angel Lord tells her before he even tells her anything. He says, basically, before I tell you what's about to happen, I want you to know this. God says he is with you. So what comes out of my mouth next will only be blanketed in the idea that I am with you. Right? We'll get to that more in a moment. So she's greatly troubled. We know that. We also know that she's afraid, and rightly so. We know she's afraid, not because Mary says, I'm afraid, but because the angel of the Lord tells her not to be afraid. He actually tells her after that announcement, she's greatly troubled, and he says to her, Mary was greatly troubled, right? And he says, do not be afraid. Mary, you have found favor with God. So the angel of the Lord knows that she is afraid, and he tells her not to be which isn't crazy, right? Because anyone in Scripture has an encounter with the Lord, whether it be through an angel or through the voice or through a vision, this is typically the encounter that they have. In fact, if you fast forward in Luke chapter 2 where you see the magi or the, um, the angels show up to the shepherds in the middle of the potter's field, right, in the middle of that field in the night, Middle East night sky, the, uh, the shepherds are terrified. And what does the angel of the Lord say? He tells them, do not be afraid. So they show up to make this pronouncement of the birth of Christ, and the shepherds freak out, and it says, don't be afraid. If you fast forward to Matthew 28, Mary and the other Mary, which is probably not this Mary, um, there's a bunch of Marys in Scripture, um, but the Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, which is a longer story, not this, we'll get into that later. They go to the tomb. The tomb is empty. An angel Lord had rolled back the stone and was sitting upon it. You know what the first thing the angel Lord said to Mary and the other Mary? Do not be afraid. He's not here. Fear is real. It's real. We know it's real because God says not to have it. If we didn't have it, he wouldn't have to say don't have it. So fear is real. Mary's got it. She's troubled and she's afraid. But then Mary also has questions, right? We see one of them, but I see this question is like, one question that basically rolls over the edge of the dam before all the questions fold. And the angel of the Lord says to her, something incredible is about to happen. In fact, you are going to give birth, and they're going to call him the son of the most high. And that term most high is the term for essentially Yahweh. He's going to be the son of God. And that son is not just going to be the son of God. He is going to be the one, the one that reestablishes the house of David. And on top of that, you are going to also call him the Son of God. And so here comes Mary's first question, right? And Mary's young, 
she ain't dumb. And she says, how? I just want you to know I'm still a virgin. I'm betrothed to be married. I don't know a ton about anatomy and all those things, but I know this is not how this works. How? But behind that question, I think, are a thousand others, right? Like once I get past the how this is going to happen, it is what are people going to say? Where am I going to go? Are my parents going to disown me? This is a scandalous thing for Mary to show up pregnant, right? And when someone says to you, oh, let me just frame this back. For those of you that have daughters, I've got one. She comes home one day and she's like, I'm pregnant. And I'm like, oh, really? That's great. She's like, don't worry, it's God's, right? Um, we're going to commit her. And we're also going to have a lot of other questions, um, really. That's what Mary's facing, right? You think her father and mother were just going to be like, oh, sure, of course. That makes total sense. No, it doesn't make any sense. Because these are the questions that begin to follow the how. And how does the Lord answer the how? He says, well, it doesn't really tell her. He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and he will overshadow you. And then he tells her what is going to be, but not how it's going to be. He doesn't say, listen, Mary, don't freak out. I've actually appeared to your parents. We've talked to them. They're cool. We're all good. Everybody knows. I've got this little letter. It's signed. It's sealed. Take this. When people ask questions, just show them this is from God. Like he gives them nothing. And I think there's a whole host of questions that follow. But the first one is the most important, which is this is impossible. That's basically what she's saying. It's not really a question. It's basically saying it's impossible because I'm a virgin. You can't. I can't. None of this can actually happen. And the Lord basically says it's going to be a miracle. So here you have Mary, right? She is troubled in spirit. She is afraid. And she's got a lot of questions. And I say all that to just say, look, Mary, she's really normal, right? I know that the church would love to sort of pronounce this super pious, amazing thing, and Mary's faith won her this right. But that's not actually what's happening at all. All we know about Mary is that God favored her. But God always tends to favor people in Scripture that don't deserve it. Right? God doesn't just pick the greatest and the perfect and say, you know what, you're going to... I mean, look at the disciples for crying out loud. This is a ragtag group of people that couldn't... Some of them couldn't spell their own name, right? They're from Nazareth. They have these weird, you know, accents. No one thought they were smart. They were all uneducated. The best one of them could do was count. The other, one were, the other ones were fishermen and brothers of people that had jobs. Like God always sort of does the thing that shouldn't be done. And so we have no recollection or no idea that Mary was some perfect, super pious, religious girl who did everything right. And God chose the best of all the girls in Nazareth. No, God went to Nazareth where no one really good came from. In fact, do you remember when people were saying, when they were kind of, Jesus was in, in the high priest courtyard. And basically they say, you're from Nazareth and nothing good comes out of Nazareth. It was a throwaway place. It was a, a rural place where people didn't read and they surely weren't educated and they had weird accents and they were far away from the sort of beauty of city life in Jerusalem. And yet the Holy Spirit shows up, right? Where does he make his first announcement about the coming of this Messiah? To a bunch of shepherd boys that were basically throwaways. They were just kids. They were spending the night trying to protect sheep. All this to say, she's just really a person. And she's got a lot of the same feelings that you and I have when God shows up in our lives and says things are going to be different or I have something for you or he makes a promise. We are troubled at times. We have fears at times. And we have a lot of questions. So then I started looking at this like, what is God's response to these things? Like, she's got these real things, right? How does God respond to them? How does he respond to us? And it's, it's really kind of interesting because he does speak directly into those things. And the first thing that he tells her is he says, I am with you. 
And I love this picture, right? Because before he even tells her anything, before he even gives her a detail or tells her the giant thing that's coming, he says, Mary, I need you to know that I am with you, which is the exact same thing he's going to say to Joseph next week when we look at that text. He's going to appear to Joseph in a dream and then say, Joseph, the same thing's about to happen. He tells Mary, and he says, you are going to call him Emmanuel. We know what Emmanuel means, right? It means God with us. He tells Mary, God with us. He tells Joseph, God with us. He tells the disciples at the Great Commission in Matthew 28. And surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. And he sends the church out. He says, God with us. It's a remarkable thing, right? Because it is perhaps the greatest promise in all of Scripture. This great promise that God is with us. Not What that means is that God is present His presence is with us at all these moments. Have you ever been in a place where you felt fully alone? Like really fully alone? Like no one hears you, no one understands, no one is out there. This is the great redemption to those feelings. God has said that for the believer, the thing that he has given us is the promise that he is always and forever with us. He is most literally present with us, around us, and in us. And as the Holy Spirit dwells in the life of a believer, God's presence is with us, which answers the question, I feel alone, and God says, never. Never. And the one thing he assures Mary of in the middle of her questions is that what you're going to walk through, I'm not going to give you all the details of, but I will tell you I am here. And that's the same thing that God tells us. He never gives us all those details. He never tells us how it's all going to work out. He never says, I've already talked to your parents, or I've worked these things out with your boss, or I want you to know you're going to get another job, or yeah, you had this terrible diagnosis, but I've got it all taken care of. He never gives us the end. He just says, as we walk, I am with you. I am God. I'm with you. Pretty remarkable. That's God's beautiful answer to the most complex situations. So no matter how alone you feel or how distant you may feel, God is not absent or gone. It's not even in his nature. God's nature is to be with us. And not just like I'm walking alongside you or carrying you like footprints in the sand, but like most literally dwelling in you. If we really get into the idea, the truth of the matter is, is that God's presence is everywhere. It's in the very atmosphere, the breath that we breathe. There is no escaping it. God most literally is present. In your highest moments, in your lowest valleys, and in all the in-betweens where most of us usually live. And we live in the in-betweens. In all of those spaces, God is with us. So in Mary's feeling of trouble, right, my troubled spirit, God's answer to that is, I'm here. In your troubled spirit, broken marriage, difficult financial ends, whatever these things are, anxieties at work, fear of what comes next. God says, I am here. I'm here. Troubled as your spirit may be, I am with you. It's a great promise to the believer. It's a great promise in all of Scripture. But we also know that Mary's afraid, and God knows that. And so what does he do? The first thing he tells her is, do not be afraid. And as I mentioned, fear is real, right? Because God wouldn't tell us not to have it if it wasn't real. The reality is that is our normal response to life. When life doesn't go according to plan, when things get turned upside down, when our control, the illusion of our control dissipates, we go straight to fear. A huge portion of Scripture is dedicated to us letting go of fear and trusting the Lord. From the Old Testament all the way through the New, it is riddled with this idea of letting go of fear and trusting the Lord. But they're afraid. 
And as I mentioned, it is the response that most people have when they come face to face with the Lord. My favorite picture of all this actually comes out of Matthew. I kind of mentioned it earlier, but I'll go through the full story. It's Easter Sunday, right? It's Easter Sunday. It's supposed to be the greatest day of the year for the believer, right? For us, living in the fullness of knowing the whole redemptive story, it is. But for those that were walking in real time, it wasn't. We have to remember that, right? Like our picture of Easter Sunday was not the same picture of Easter Sunday 2,000 years ago. That Sunday was filled with questions. They knew that the body was gone. They had gone to the tomb and it was empty, but they had no idea what that meant. They had heard Jesus said that he would come back, but they didn't know the fullness of it. They had no idea if the Roman soldiers had taken the body, if someone's playing a trick on them. They didn't know what was going on. If the grave had been robbed, they were afraid. So you remember that story, right? Matthew 28. After the Sabbath of the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb. There was a violent earthquake. An angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, he rolled back the stone and he sat upon it. His appearance was like lightning. And his clothes were white as snow. And the guards were so afraid that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell the disciples that he has risen from the dead and going ahead of them into Galilee, and there you will see him. Now I have told you. And listen to their response. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell the disciples. So their first interaction, right, obviously is one of fear. But that fear is wrapped up in the presence of this angel. It's also wrapped up in the unknown. What does this mean? Jesus is gone. How do we live life without him? Did Pilate take him? Is he coming for us next? Are we all going to die? The angel of the Lord says, don't be afraid. You're looking for Jesus, but he's done exactly what he said he's going to do. And so what happens He tells them to go and tell the disciples, and what do they do? It says they hurried away, afraid, yet filled with joy. I love this story because it's probably the most raw and true story of real emotion of a follower of Christ that there is. See, we tend to think that as followers of Christ, we have to be super joyful all the time, and if we're not, somehow we're missing something. But the reality is, is that fear of life Coupling that with the joy of knowing that Jesus is fully alive is really what living the Christian life is about. It's about having the truth of the aliveness and the presence and the God with us overshadowing the fear of reality. The fear of what life might be or could be when Jesus says, I am who I say I am. I am with you. Because the truth of God with us overpowers the reality of the fear. So they hurried away afraid yet joyful. You see, fear is real in all of our lives. You are allowed to have it. Paul tells Timothy it doesn't come from the Lord, but you're allowed to have it. But fear should not overcome us. It shouldn't seize us. It shouldn't direct us. What should is the joy of knowing who Christ is. Lord, I'm afraid. I don't know what this means. I don't know what the next days hold. I don't know how we're going to make ends meet. I don't know what the doctors are going to say. I don't know what tomorrow may bring. I don't know if I'm going to lose my job. Those are all very real fears. However, they don't get to own me. What gets to own me is the joy of knowing that you are alive. So yes, I am afraid, but I am filled with joy because I'm not alone. Which is basically what Mary and the other Marys are saying. They are afraid, yet they are overwhelmed of the goodness that Jesus is alive. They have real fears, but those fears are overrun by the reality of the presence of Christ. 
for the fear for us. You are allowed to have it. Don't ever let anybody tell you that you're not. You are allowed to have it. As believers, though, you're not allowed to let it run you. Fear is real. When you have a loved one that you care about and there's something going on and you're afraid of the outcome, that fear is allowed. When you are raising children and they go to drive for the first time, you are allowed to be afraid. When you take a new job and you put all your eggs in this basket and you say, God, you called us to do this and I'm going to walk out on it, you are allowed to be afraid. What you are not allowed to do is allow that to run you. You are not allowed that fear to direct your paths. You are not allowed that fear to cause to seize you, to become so afraid that you become immobile, that you begin to question who God is. No, you couple that fear with the greatness and the joy of knowing the promise of Emmanuel. Meaning no matter what we walk through, Lord, as afraid as I may be, you are with me. And that's what he's telling Mary. He's going, Mary, what's about to unfold is going to be petrifying. Because people are going to say a lot of things. Your life is going to be turned upside down. It's going to be a real mess. But I got something in store for you in this world that is amazing, and so I am with you. And so Mary was allowed to be afraid, but she wasn't allowed to have that fear run her. Same thing with you and I. You're allowed to be afraid. doesn't mean you're a lesser Christian and you have no faith in all those things. But it does mean that you can't let that own you, right? So the Holy Spirit shows up to the voice of the angel Gabriel and says, I'm with you, don't be afraid. And the last thing he tells Mary, and then we'll get to her response and wrap all this up this morning, is he says, I do want you to know this. In response to your question, how, let me tell you what I will do. And Mary's question, how, is how is this going to be? And you know what the Lord says to her? He says, I will overshadow you. So it's a remarkable answer, right? Because it's not really Mary's question. Mary's question at first, right? And I said it's actually the question that has a whole lot of other questions behind it. But the first question is very technical. It is actually a real question. How can I become pregnant with the child that is going to sit on the house of David? And the Holy Spirit actually, through the voice of angel, the Gabriel angel, says nothing towards the answer of that question. He actually says something much deeper. He gives her all these details and then says, the Lord himself will come upon you and he will overshadow you. You know, the other, other place we see that term overshadow or envelop is what that Greek word means, is at the transfiguration. If we jump over to Mark chapter 7, You'll see it. It's really kind of a cool picture. The transfiguration is Jesus standing there, and all of a sudden this incredible, miraculous thing happens that Peter and a couple of the disciples witness, where Jesus is basically transfigured into all of his glory. And listen to how it gets told. After six days, Jesus took Peter and James and John, and he led them up to a high mountain where they were alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there he appeared before Elijah and Moses, and they were all talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He didn't know what else to say. They were all super frightened. And then a cloud appeared and enveloped, and that's the same word, overshadowed. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped or overshadowed them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. 
So what we see in this idea of enveloping or overshadowing is God's presence wrapping around, covering, and protecting. So here's Jesus transfigured from his sort of earthly existence into this glorious holiness, standing with Moses and Elijah, and the normal guys over here going, maybe we should make some tents. I don't know what else to say. Freaking out here. And this cloud, which is always a representation of God in Scripture. God is his representation manifests in clouds, pillar of clouds by night, the cloud on top of Mount Sinai. Like God's presence, he speaks to them out of these things, right? This cloud envelops the presence of Jesus and Elijah and Moses, and God speaks to them through his presence, and he says, this is my son. Listen to him. God's presence enveloped them, covered them, overshadowed them. That's what he says to Mary. Mary says, God, I don't know how this is going to, how, how? And God says, I will cover you. I will overshadow you. I will protect you. He doesn't actually answer her. He just says, what is coming, I will wrap myself around you. Which I think is the exact same response that God tells us. Which is, I'm not going to give you all the answers. I'm not going to let you know how all these things unfold. I hold the world in my hand. I know every hair on your head. I know every breath that you'll breathe, every need that you have, every prayer that you ask before you even whisper it. I want you to trust me and follow me. So when you say, God, how? I don't know what's next, God. How is this going to work out? Where are we supposed to go? What are we going to do? God's response is not to give us a litany of the analytical data that will lead us to the answer we need to hear. He just says, I am with you. Do not be afraid. I will cover you and overshadow you. My presence is all that you need. That's what God is saying to Mary. She says, how? And he says, my presence. I am enough for you. We hate waiting. We hate it, especially in our culture. Like, we have to have things now. And it's getting worse and worse, right? Like if you shop on Amazon and it's not a prime delivery, do you dump it from your cart? How quickly? You're like, I cannot wait five days for this thing. I need it in two days. Better, I need it now, but I, not enough to go and get it, right? We hate waiting. We hate traffic. I mean, if I hear one more person in Oklahoma tell me that traffic is bad here, I am going to slap you. <laughs> this is the easiest place in the universe to live for traffic. We lived in Austin for I lived in LA for a little while. These are nightmares. We hate waiting. We hate waiting because we just don't like having answers. That's really what waiting is. It's being in the middle, being in the in-between. Like, what's the worst week of your life when you go to the doctor and he says, We need to run some tests? It's a pretty big deal, but we'll have to wait and see. It's the worst week, isn't it? Because why? Because we don't have answers. It's not that we're really impatient as much as it is we just need to know. The challenge of following Jesus is that we try and tell him the same thing. I just need to know. And he just says, no, you just need me. We want the answers. We want to know. We want him to promise us that next year, 2024, is going to be great and everything's going to work out. And no matter what we walk through, it'll all come out okay in the end. And God is not interested in telling us that ever. He is always interested in saying exactly to us what he said to Mary, which is, I am with you. Do not be afraid. My presence will cover you. And then look at how Mary responds, which I find to be the most amazing thing in all of this. 
So God gives her no answers. He doesn't explain it. He doesn't tell her anything else. He doesn't say, look, like I said, I went before your parents. We're all good. When you go home, everything's going to be cool. He just says none of that. He says, I will overshadow you. And look at what Mary says. I am the Lord's servant. May it be as you have said. And the angel left. So this is what Mary says. Having heard all of those great things, no, she didn't hear a lot of great things. She just heard God said, I'm with you, don't be afraid, my presence will cover you. And she says, I am yours, may it be. In other words, she says, come Lord Jesus. As I was looking over this the past couple of weeks, I thought, I want my life, Jesus, to say that. Like everything in me wants to be able to say, I am yours, may it be. I don't know what tomorrow brings. I've got no idea. I don't know what happens when I drive out of this parking lot, much less what's going to happen in April of 2024. I don't have any idea. I don't know how to answer the difficult questions. I don't know how to assure the people in my life that things are going to be fine. I don't know if they're going to be fine. What I do know is that God is real, and his promise is that he will never leave. His promise is that he is Emmanuel, God with us. His promise is that fear should not run me. His promise is that he will overshadow me with his presence. He will envelop me. Meaning there's not one breath of one moment of my life as a follower of Christ that is alone. If you think about the envelopment of your life like a cloud, there is not one breath of one moment of your life that God is not fully covering you. I am the Lord's may it be, right? That's the call of the Christ follower. And it's the whisper of Advent that in all these things, whatever's coming your way, whatever you're dealing with, whatever you're struggling with, whatever fear you maybe have, whatever lie the enemy is telling you, the answer for the follower of Christ should be the same. I'm troubled, I'm afraid, and I've got questions. And God says, I am with you. Don't be afraid. I will envelop and overshadow you. And the only response that we have left is, I'm yours. May it be. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the beauty of this season and for the truth wrapped up in this simple interaction between Mary and the angel Gabriel. The promises are so real and so true. They're so powerful and so authentic that I want you to burn them into our soul. Mary experiences the same things that most of us do when confronted with difficult situations or the call of the Lord or something we're not ready for, our spirits are troubled. We get afraid and we have a lot of questions. And your responses to Mary are the same that you respond to us with, which is that I am with you. I am Emmanuel. It is the great picture and promise of Scripture and Advent. Don't be afraid. Fear is real. You're allowed to have it, but it does not get to own you. That I am afraid yet joyful. And then the Lord says, I will overshadow you. My presence will never leave you. I will cover you and envelop you. How this will be is because I will be. And so, Lord, make our response the only true and honest response there can be, which is, I am the Lord's. May it be. In other words, as we say to you, God, I am yours. I believe that well. May it be just as you said. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's stand together and close our time in worship this morning. Oh, come, all ye faithful, joy.
joyful and triumphant, O come ye, O come ye to Bethlehem. Come and behold him, born the King of angels, O come let us adore him, O come let us adore him, O come let us adore him, Christ the Shall be Prince of Peace, mighty God. 
Amen. My prayer is that as we walk out of here, those truths might be kind of ingrained and pressed and sealed on our heart, that when we're feeling and experiencing trouble or fear, we have questions that are running and making their way through our lives, and we'd listen to the words the Holy Spirit says to Mary, and we'd recognize that those are for us as followers of Christ, that God is with us, that we are not to be afraid, and that he will overshadow and empower and envelop us. And our only and right response is to say, I am the Lord's. May it be. Come, Lord Jesus. Go in peace.